Welcome to the Warrant, the podcast series by C3, the Center for Criminal Justice Reform and Capacity Building. Today's session, uh, we will be focusing on uh, the use of forensic evidence in serious sexual violence cases. And um, unfortunately, when it comes to such cases, there's a high acquittal rate. And we wanted to discuss the reason behind this high acquittal rate uh, while focusing on the use of forensic evidence. We've seen the utility of the use of forensic evidence in criminal trials, such as in the Zainab murder case and in the recent motorway incident case. However, we wanted to highlight certain challenges that arise when it comes to the use of such evidence uh, for justice sector actors, such as in the collection and preservation of such evidence for, uh, for investigators and the subsequent use of such evidence uh, in the criminal trial itself. To discuss all these issues, we have with us today Ms. Mavra Ghaznavi, who is a lawyer who focuses on criminal justice reform and has worked on key areas in the field in a project implemented by Adam Smith International. During this time, uh, Mavra has developed SOPs and laws, conducted trainings, advised on strategic litigation, and reviewed data in order to assist the Punjab government in strengthening the investigation and prosecution of homicide and serious sexual violence cases. So welcome, Mavra. We're happy, we're happy to have you with us today. Uh, so before um, we start, I just wanted to ask you broadly, uh, what are some of the main challenges that uh, we face in the prosecution of serious sexual violence cases in Pakistan? Thank you for that question, Zainab. Um, I think the, there's two key cultural challenges that impede the prosecution and the investigation of um, serious sexual violence cases. Um, firstly, we have the issue of uh, ocular testimony. Our criminal justice system is predicated on uh, ocular testimony or what we call oral testimony. Um, and the issue is essentially that um, under Chapter 4 of the 1984 Kanun-e-Jahadat, um, all facts except the content of documents uh, may be proved by oral evidence. And uh, there's not enough real reliance on forensic or uh, physical evidence in such cases. Um, so what frequently happens in cases of serious sexual violence is that it essentially devolves into a he said versus she, uh, he said versus she said situation um, because each party will present their own witnesses. And even when you have strong corroborative evidence in the form of, um, you know, DNA evidence or other forensic or physical evidence, that's not given the same weightage as um, the oral testimony in these in these trials. The second issue that I want to highlight is the lack of reporting, um, the delayed reporting and the residing of survivors of sexual violence in these cases. And this is really, um, you know, because um, there's an enormous amount of pressure in these cases to resile. Um, societal pressure, family pressure, um, they also take an extraordinary amount of time in some situations. I recently read about a case in Karachi, uh, which was, um, you know, where the case began in 2001 and the judgment was finally passed in 2021. Um, so, you know, that obviously means that as 
a sexual violence case, if it lasts for 10 years, that means constant interruptions to the survivor's life, you know, through major life events. They're getting married, having children, they're, you know, working, doing all sorts of things. And their life seems to be on hold until this case is adjudicated. And, you know, if it takes out 10 years of your life, that's a, you know, a substantial amount of time. Um, then when we talk about um, pressure from family and society, you know, there's a lot of powerful rape myths that exist in our society. Um, and there's a lot of pressure on the victim to sort of resile and sort of go on with their life. There's also financial pressure because oftentimes the accused will um, either, you know, offer money or will offer some sort of other benefit, you know, transfer land or do something um, to have these charges dropped. Um, there's also, you know, physical violence can be also threatened in these cases. So if the accused um, puts sort of, you know, uh, threats to the family of the victim or to the victim directly, um, that obviously motivates the survivor to resile in these cases. Um, you know, and these, I mentioned rape myths, you know, and we've, um, seen recently in the motorway incident, the CPO victim blaming um, the survivor of that uh, incident and suggesting that, you know, if she hadn't been out at that time of night or if she hadn't been out on her on, you know, on her own, then the incident wouldn't have occurred. Um, we also had the recent telethon with Imran Khan suggesting that sexual violence is the result of women not observing parda. And these are very powerful rape myths that continue to persist in our society. Um, and result in victim blaming and, um, you know, underreporting of these cases or resiling. Um, another, while we're talking about rape myths, another very powerful rape myth that continues to persist, not only in Pakistan, but everywhere in the world, is that um, a survivor of sexual violence should have signs of resistance on their body to prove that they didn't consent. Um, and this relies on a very limited understanding of stress responses to life and death situations. So the frequent view in these cases is that the uh, survivor should have either fled uh, the scene or should have fought. Uh, and in fighting should have uh, obtained, you know, marks, lacerations, bruises to their body, indicating that they mounted some sort of uh, resistance. But this overlooks the fact that the most common response in life and death situations is freezing, where the victim realizing that it's a situation where their life is in jeopardy, simply complies uh, with the instructions of the assailant. Um, it also overlooks the fact that in many cases, the assailant may have a weapon, a gun or a knife and, um, you know, trying to resist um, the assailant when they have a weapon is sure to prove deadly for many, um, many sort of victims of sexual violence. Um, so that sort of gives you an idea of the challenges that um, survivors of sexual violence face uh, in Pakistan and why we see um, even where cases, um, you know, uh, reach the trial stage, many victims resile because of the pressures from society, from family or threats from the accused. Um, so I hope that gives you a good sort of overview of the issues. Um, thank you, Mavra, for providing um, a very great overview of the major challenges that uh, 
prosecutors face uh, in the prosecution of these cases. Um, touching upon some of these, such as the reliance, over-reliance on ocular evidence, resiling of witnesses, do we have any provisions in our domestic law or uh, legislative framework that deal with witness protection uh, in such cases? And broadly, what are the defects or lacunas in, the, in our legislative framework that lead to ineffective prosecution of such cases? Thank you for that, Zainab. Um, yes, so uh, in terms of witness protection, we do have witness protection legislation in Punjab. Uh, we have the Witness Protection Act and Witness Protection Rules. And within these rules, there is, in fact, a provision um, which states that the court will forbid a question to the victim of, sex of a sexual events relating to any sexual behavior of the victim on any previous occasion with the accused or any other person, unless the question in the opinion of the court is a relevant fact of the case. Now, this was further strengthened in a recent judgment of the Supreme Court, where Justice Mansouri Shah stated that when allowing or disallowing questions regarding the prior sexual history of the victim, uh, the court should balance the rights of the accused to make a full defense and potential pre uh, prejudice to the complainant's rights to dignity and privacy, to keep the scales of justice even for both. Um, so, you know, there are some provisions within our law um, that protect the victim from questions regarding their prior, prior sexual history. But in my opinion, they don't really go far enough. Um, our, and these are um, called rape shield laws uh, in other jurisdictions. These essentially shield uh, the victim from questions that might be prejudicial to um, a sexual violence case. Um, and, you know, in the U.S., um, there have been um, expressed rules of evidence for questioning survivors of sexual violence that go back 50 years. Um, you know, the first ones were introduced in 1978 in Michigan um, and in Canada, in the UK, they were introduced around, I think, in the 80s. Um, so in other jurisdictions, they have very, very specific circumstances outlined in which um, the defense counsel can produce evidence or introduce questions about the prior sexual history of the victim. For example, um, in the UK, there was a case where um, the survivor had been sexually assaulted in um, while she was on holiday and she'd been on holiday, um, you know, a few days prior to the uh, instant um, that was the focus of this case. So, um, you know, they were able to introduce evidence from the previous sexual assault um, in the existing case to try and sort of uh, prove that the assailant in that case wasn't responsible and the sort of um, physical evidence that was collected in the UK related to the sexual assault that happened abroad. So, um, you know, there's very specific sort of circumstances where you could allow such questions. And these are framed um, in rules of evidence in more sort of developed jurisdictions. Um, so that's interesting to note, um, you know, in terms of um, our legislative framework and other um, gaps that, you know, make it difficult to effectively prosecute or investigate uh, such crimes. There are two other issues besides rape shield laws um, that I would like to highlight. Um, first of all, you know, there's the issue of um, medical legal uh, practices. And what we have in Punjab is essentially a very um, fractured system. 
Um, in 2015, the Punjab Health Department was actually bifurcated into the primary and secondary healthcare department and the specialized healthcare and medica medical education department. As a result of this bifurcation, what happened is that the Office of the Surgeon Medical Legal, which is um, sort of tasked with ensuring uh, a high standard of medical legal practices in Punjab, became sort of the orphan child of the health department. Um, there is no parent legislation establishing the Office of the Surgeon Medical Legal or subsidiary legislation. In fact, in the Punjab Rules of Business, there is no mention of the Office of the Surgeon Medical Legal at all, um, which means that, you know, there's a very confused system um, in terms of jurisdiction and administration. It's also confused because you have um, certain hospitals and health facilities that fall under the primary and secondary healthcare um, department. And then some um, such as teaching hospitals, which fall under the specialized healthcare department. Um, this means that administratively, it's very difficult to have sort of um, a, co a cohesive um, system of managing or ensuring quality uh, medical legal practices across uh, Punjab. It also means that the office of the surgeon medical legal is essentially declawed. It doesn't have any powers. Um, it can't, you know, uh, for example, it can't bring in a medical legal officer and um, take their license away or, you know, introduce some sort of disciplinary proceedings at all. Um, the only thing that the office of the surgeon medical legal really does is at the, you know, Upon instruction from the uh, two uh, parent healthcare departments, they will train medical legal officers or they will, um, you know, as part of the review process or the review mechanism um, for medical legal evidence, they will, as the chairman of the uh, standing uh, board for medical legal examinations, they'll sort of review a medical legal case to see whether there was any discrepancies or whether a different opinion can be come to. Uh, apart from that, they have very little authority um, and it's very difficult for them also to um, uh, arrange financing. Um, there's no real budget for medical legal work in Punjab either. So that's also problematic. Another issue um, that needs to be addressed is also um, Section 510 of the Code of Criminal Procedure. Section 510 of the CRPC relates to um, you know, government experts and uh, reports produced by them. Um, and these reports are admi admissible per se, which means that they can be admitted into evidence without the expert who produced the report um, having to come in and uh, testify as to the contents of that report. Um, there is a discretion um, within Section 510 allowing the court to call that uh, expert in to provide, um, you know, uh, oral evidence regardless, um, regardless. Um, but the issue really is that Section 510 does not, um, is silent as far as DNA reports are concerned. Um, there is mention of the chemical examiner, but that is a, a role that is now defunct in Punjab. Um, all DNA or serology testing is done by the uh, Punjab Forensic Science Agency or PFSA. Um, but there's no explicit mention in Section 510 of the PFSA or DNA reports. 
Um, this is a lacuna that needs to be filled. And in fact, um, you know, there's been a series of recent cases that talk about DNA evidence. Um, you have the 2013 Salman Akram case, uh, in which the Supreme Court stated that DNA evidence is the gold standard. Um, and DNA evidence must be collected in all sort of serious sexual violence cases. Um, then you, after that, uh, I believe in 2016, you have the Azim Khan case that came before the Supreme Court, where doubt was raised about uh, the admissibility of DNA reports. And the Supreme Court in that case um, relied on the language of Section 510 of the CRPC and stated that since DNA reports are not expressly mentioned in that provision, they are not admissible per se. Um, and then more recently, I believe uh, Mansoor Ali Shah in a case um, discussing DNA evidence um, said that, you know, the government needs to revisit Section 510 and revise it because DNA evidence in the same way that any other report is produced by a government expert should also be admissible per se. And, you know, there is that discretionary provision within that section that allows the court to call upon that expert and ask them to come to court and provide oral testimony. Uh, but it's not necessary for the PFSA expert to be called in in every single case, um, especially when, you know, you have um, a province as large as Punjab. It's difficult for PFSA to ensure that their experts are available um, on a daily basis to attend to, um, you know, cases that may be um, being heard in Layer or, uh, you know, other districts um, that are sort of far away from Lahore. Um, so these are sort of three key um, lacunas within the law that need to be addressed um, as soon as possible by parliament. Uh, thank you for that, Mavra. Uh, I'm sure our audience will find it very surprising that in this day and age, uh, evidence such as DNA is not admissible per se under Section 510 CRPC and that amendments are needed to our legislative framework in order to make it admissible per se. I understand from uh, what you've told us that uh, there have been recent judgments on this, uh, which uh, do uh, state that such evidence should be admissible per se. However, it is very surprising that the law is in the state that it is in today. So broadly, I believe we've discussed the challenges um, that arise due to defects in our legislative framework. Now, I just wanted to come to some of the common mistakes that investigators make in the collection and preservation of such evidence and uh, whether there are protocols in place for them to follow, whether these are not being followed strictly. So what are the main issues that arise when it comes to uh, the collection and preservation of such evidence? Yes, um, there is actually quite a few issues in relation to um, the collection and preservation of um, forensic evidence. Um, the first issue that I want to highlight is that um, frequently in cases of sexual violence, almost in all cases, in fact, um, reliance is placed exclusively on the medical legal examination. Um, you know, in cases of sexual violence, you will have multiple crime scenes. The, um, the body of the survivor is in itself a crime scene. The body of the accused persons, uh, is also a crime scene. And then the physical location where the act occurred or the offense occurred is also a crime scene. Um, but, Unfortunately, investigators um, only sort of place emphasis on the medical legal of the survivor of the sexual 
uh, assault um, when in fact what they should be doing is arresting the accused as soon as possible and making sure that a medical legal uh, of their person is done as well and also securing the crime scene um, the physical location where the incident occurred and making sure that they collect all you know, all sorts of evidence that you could collect from that physical location as well. Um, so from the physical location, you might be able to obtain CCTV footage. Um, you'd be able to collect, you know, DNA uh, from sort of a plethora of um, physical objects in the location as well. If, you know, if there's carpeting or bedding, all of that can be collected. Um, you know, if there's a, a an attached bathroom or a washroom on the in the in the crime scene, um, you know, you might be able to obtain um, a condom or um, you know blood or spit or you know if the toilet hasn't been flushed, you know, you can also get DNA evidence that way. Um, you can also get it from glasses, plates, cigarette butts, all sorts of evidence can be collected. Um, that would certainly help strengthen a sexual violence case. But unfortunately, what happens is that um, in these cases, there's a lack of coordination between first responders and investigators. Um, the police is actually, um, you know, they quite a while ago introduced a wireless system. And that means that when, um, you know, a case is reported of sexual violence, the first responder is informed immediately and someone is dispatched to the location of the uh, survivor um, ASAP. Um, but also the wireless control is, um, you know, accessible to the IO. So the IO, the investigating officer is also immediately made aware of the case. The SHO station house officer in the nearest police station is also made aware. Um, you know, and despite the investigation officer and the SHO uh, being made aware, what frequently happens is that they um, wait for the first responder to attend the crime scene. And um, then, you know, after a day or a few days, they'll go and speak to the um, survivor and attend the crime scene. Uh, if you delay it by a day or a few days, then obviously you're going to have a loss of critical DNA evidence, um, the evidence that could be collected from the survivor, the accused and the crime scene. Um, because, you know, if the uh, survivor has taken a bath or brushed their teeth or washed their clothes or disposed of their clothes, um, that means that you've lost critical evidence. Um, the same with the, um, you know, accused. You would expect that they would immediately after an incident go take a shower, change their clothes, burn their clothes perhaps, and you've lost critical evidence as well. Um, and the crime scene, obviously, the longer you sort of uh, leave it unsecured, um, the more likely you are to lose evidence. Within, um, you know, within criminal investigations, there's something referred to as the golden hour, and that's the hour uh, immediately after an incident has occurred, um, during which time you have the highest probability of collecting crucial evidence. Um, and the more time uh, lapses, the more sort of likely you are to have lost critical evidence. Um, so that's, you know, a major issue in these cases is the sort of um, delay that happens as a result of, uh, you know, investigation officers not responding immediately. Um, and then the sort of um, emphasis placed on the medical legal examination of the survivor um, whereas they should place sort of equal sort of importance on, you know, the accused having a medical legal done and the crime scene uh, being secured and evidence being collected from there. 
Um, these are sort of the key areas um, that need to be looked at by um, the Punjab police uh, specifically um, if they want to improve the way that these investigations are carried out. Right. Uh, and in terms of resources that are pro provided to these investigators, are there any challenges with respect to those? Um, absolutely. There's definitely challenges um, for investigators. Um, so what we see is in other jurisdictions, um, police officers are equipped with early evidence collection kits, um, which allow the, you know, um, allow the police to be able to collect evidence from um, the survivor as soon as possible. Um, that is not too invasive. So, for example, um, the early evidence collection kit will allow them to take um, buccal swabs or oral swabs. Um, if there has been oral penetration, then you don't want a situation where the survivor is not able to eat or drink water because they're waiting on the medical legal examination to take place. So to avoid that sort of um, needless discomfort for the survivor, um, early evidence collection kits are used by police officers to collect evidence as soon as possible um, that has the highest sort of um, probability of being lost. Um, you also use these uh, kits to collect evidence from under the fingernails because if there has been some resistance um, and, you know, the victim was able to scratch um, the uh, accused, um, you'd be able to collect important DNA evidence uh, from under the fingernails. So, you know, you don't want to basically need place the survivor under this, um, under needless discomfort. Um, if you can collect evidence early that allows them to, you know, comfortably then eat, drink, um, you know, brush their teeth, uh, wash their hands, things like that, then you want to allow them to be able to do that. Um, the other issue is that we've seen that um, the first responders in these cases are often um, the dolphin squad and they will arrive at the scene and be unable to do anything in terms of securing the crime scene until the police response unit vehicle arrives um, or the Biru vehicles. And I'm sure people um, watching or listening to this podcast have seen police vehicles, which will have the PRU written across the side. Um, those vehicles actually have a kit in the back, uh, which will include um, you know, certain materials that are needed for securing crime scenes. Uh, unfortunately, there's not sort of regular funding of these resources. So often um, police officers will complain that they're not provided the equipment, for example, uh, to secure the crime scene. Ordinarily, um, I'm sure listeners are familiar with crime scene tape, the bright yellow tape that you see around crime scenes. Um, often police officers in Pakistan or in Punjab are not equipped with um, that tape, um, which makes it difficult for them, obviously, to secure the crime scene. Um, they also need specialized equipment to protect evidence. Um, if you have a scene that's outdoors, for example, then you would want to establish a tent, um, you know, so that evidence is protected from the elements. Um, and unfortunately, that sort of specialized equipment is not available to police officers here. Um, there are now discussions about, um, you know, increasing as well the cost uh, or the the amount that is allocated for investigations of sexual violence. Um, unfortunately, um, police officers in Punjab are only allotted a couple of thousand rupees for these investigations. 
um, and they have to be able to cover the cost of petrol, uh, the cost of um, medical legal equipment that might be needed to collect evidence, um, the cost of, you know, also just transporting the victim back to their house after the medical legal. Often police officers will pay for a rickshaw or a taxi to take the survivor back to their home. Mm-hmm. So all of those costs need to be um, factored into investigations and a more realistic figure needs to be allotted to um, sexual violence investigations. That's something that the police are currently looking into and hopefully soon, um, you know, these investigators will have the appropriate sum of money to be able to conduct an investigation without having to ask the survivor or their family for funds, which often happens. Thank you for that, Mavra. We are hopeful that investigators will get the necessary resources that they need for the uh, effect for effective investigations of such offenses. Mm-hmm. Following up from that, uh, I would just like to ask you uh, whether uh, there are any dedicated units for the collection and preservation. You mentioned the Dolphin Squad. Are they supposed to visit the crime scene first? Or are there any other units that are meant to go in their place instead? But uh, the Dolphin Squad is instead responding. So what is the uh, sequence of events or uh, any dedicated unit uh, that you would like to highlight. Thank you for that. Um, so actually, uh, there are dedicated uh, units in Punjab. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we have the Punjab Forensic Science Agency, which was established in um, you know 2011, I believe. The Act for the Punjab Forensic Science Agency came out in 2007. And this was um, a project introduced by Shabaz Sharif's government at a cost of 3 billion rupees. So a significant amount of money went into uh, establishing this, a significant amount of resources. And um, PFSA is actually a world-class institution. Um, they've been commended by forensic experts around the world, and their um, teams or their staff have actually attended trainings um, by the FBI in the U.S., by the top sort of forensic experts in the U.S., the U.K., and other jurisdictions. So they're very, very highly qualified. Um, and they, in fact, have a number of different departments within the uh, agency that look at different types of evidence. So they have, you know, the ballistics department, the DNA and serology department, um, you know, the question documents department, and so forth. And amongst these departments, they have the crime scene investigation unit department. So they have, um, you know, vehicles that respond to crime scenes and they have crime scene investigators who are very well trained and very well, well equipped, um, in collecting or, you know, securing crime scenes and then collecting and securely packaging evidence. Um, unfortunately, they're grossly underutilized in Punjab. Um, and sort of the, you touched upon you know, the sequence of events when you know a crime is reported. Uh, ordinarily, what happens is that after a case of sexual violence is reported, um, you know I mentioned the wireless system for communication within the police. Um, what happens is that the first responder will immediately respond and speak to the um, survivor, but they will then wait for the PRU vehicle to arrive with the equipment needed to, if they decide to secure the crime scene, because I, I mentioned that frequently that doesn't happen in such cases. Um, then the PRU vehicle uh, and the, the operational officers will secure the crime scene. Um, and then, you know, after that's sort of done, 
um, you would hope that the investigation officer will respond as immediately as possible. Mm -hmm. And once they're at the crime scene, they're in fact uh, in charge of that crime scene and responsible for contacting PFSA. Once the investigation officer contacts PFSA, then PFSA will send out one of their dedicated crime scene investigation units to collect the necessary evidence. Um, but as I mentioned, you know, there's a lot of um, a lack of coordination that uh, happens early on that needs to be addressed within the police. But the primary responsibility for contacting PFSA and getting that crime scene unit to the crime scene um, lies on the shoulders of the investigation officer, uh, not the Dolphin Squad or the operational police officers. Thank you, Mamra, for offering us that clarity on uh, who the dedicated units are for the collection and preservation of such evidence. Um, now, I wanted to ask you whether uh, currently there is enough adequate utilization of such forensic evidence and um, whether there has been any legislative reform in order to strengthen the admissibility of such evidence. You mentioned that um, under Section 510 CRPC, um, uh, DNA reports are not currently admissible as per the explicit language of the provision. But admissible just other, per se. Admissible per yeah. se. But just other than that, broadly, uh, have there been any recent amendments in our laws that would strengthen the admissibility of such evidence in SSV cases or generally other criminal offenses? Sure. So the sort of uh, first thing I want to talk about is, and to clear up any confusion, uh, under the Kanune Shahadat Order 1984, um, scientific evidence um, is allowed uh, in cases, um, you know, allowed to be admitted in cases. When we talk about uh, evidence being admitted and being admitted per se, uh, what we mean is that when evidence is admitted, it must be um, admitted in the process of oral evidence being given. So, for example, you have a PFSA officer or uh, expert coming to court, giving their oral testimony, and in that process, um, you know, giving, um, handing in the sort of DNA report um, to the court as well, and, um, you know, then that DNA report being admitted. When you have a document that's admitted per se, it doesn't require the expert to come in and give that sort of oral testimony um, supporting that um, admitted report. Um, so, you know, our, our, our rules of evidence and our, you know, our laws actually do recognize um, technical and scientific evidence. Um, but there still remain some issues and there's been sort of subsequent legislation that's tried to address these issues. Um, so in 2016, there was a anti-rape sort of criminal amendment um, that sort of amended a number of laws. And um, what this did essentially was um, introduce provisions that would strengthen uh, investigations of sexual assault. Um, they introduced, you know, fast track judicial mechanisms. So, you know, um, a sexual violence case has to be decided within, I think, four months. Um, they introduced that requirement for DNA testing of the uh, survivor as well as the accused. Um, and in fact, has very strong language when it comes to the accused. Um, you know, the medical legal officer can force the accused or restrain the accused when conducting their medical legal exam. Um, you know, it also introduced the idea of conducting in-camera trials, um, sort of 
closing the court to the public. Um, and it also introduced a provision uh, prohibiting the um, publication of the name of the uh, of the victim or the survivor or any sort of uh, information that could identify the survivor. So the 2016 um, legislation actually went um, quite far in terms of um, strengthening how cases of sexual violence are investigated and prosecuted. Um, but unfortunately, what happened, as happens with a lot of legislation, is that it wasn't appropriately operationalized. Um, and then we saw, um, you know, in 2020, after the motorway incident, um, there was a sort of knee-jerk response from our government. Um, it was a very sort of um, transparent PR exercise, really. And um, they hastily drafted two ordinances, the Anti-Rape Investigation and Trial Ordinance and the Criminal Law Amendment Ordinance. So there are some positive developments here um, that I want to um, commend. Um, one of the ordinances, the Criminal Law Amendment Ordinance, um, is particularly important because it recognizes all types of survivors. So um, the provision for um, rape that was in our penal code, uh, Section 376, was previously focused on female victims. And what they've done is sort of make that provision gender neutral, recognizing that, you know, male uh, victims do exist. Um, we all know that there's frequently reports of uh, male children in particular being victimized. Um, so that was an important development. Um, and but there's also a lot of issues here. Um, so between the two amendments, uh, what was seen was that there wasn't a lot of cohesion. Uh, one of the amendments talks about minors being those under the age of 16, while the other one recognizes only female victims. This is the uh, investigation and trial ordinance. It only recognizes female victims and um, recognizes minors under the age of 18. So there's sort of, um, you know, two different uh, definitions of survivors being given and two different definitions of minors in these ordinances, which is problematic. Um, I want to highlight for, you know, listeners or viewers, um, the recent statement of the Women's Action Forum and Women Lawyers Association. Uh, they issued a joint statement regarding the two ordinances, and I would encourage uh, viewers to read these because they've highlighted how firstly, um, the ordinances sort of undermine democratic processes. Uh, ordinances are sort of an extraordinary measure taken by the president to introduce emergency legis legislation when parliament is not in session. Um, but to use this power so frequently really undermines our democracy. Legislation uh, is a matter for parliament, and it should be our parliament as our elected representatives uh, debating and reviewing old laws and, and ensuring some sort of cohesion within the law as well, um, or coherence really, um, and ensuring that, you know, these laws are also being operationalized. Um, I'm focused on op operationalization because, you know, as I mentioned, the 2016 um, amendment uh, introduced a lot of important measures. Uh, we also have, as we talked about earlier, the Punjab Witness Protection Act, uh, which includes measures to protect uh, witnesses or survivors in cases of sexual violence as well. And these two ordinances um, 
sort of overlap with a lot of those provisions, um, you know, which creates confusion. Um, and also, you know, there's slight differences in procedure as well that can be problematic. Um, I also want to talk about how uh, the investigation and trial ordinance banned the two-finger test. Uh, this is a provision that was already banned by the Lahore High Court. And then later on, the Supreme Court went further and also banned uh, all forms of virginity testing. Um, there's some confusion about virginity testing. People think that it's only the two-finger test. Um, but hymen examination or looking at the hymen for old injuries um, is also a form of virginity testing. Uh, we frequently see when we read judgments, you know, there's reference made to the hymen being old torn or the, um, or the survivor being habitual based on the medical legal examination. And that is really because the hymen has, ex has been examined and the medical legal officer in that case determined that the uh, survivor was sexually active. Um, so the ordinances banned the two-finger test, but um, the Supreme Court took it further, which is important. Um, and there's a lot of provisions within the um, investigation and trial ordinance in particular that are very problematic. Um, you know, they introduced an anti-rape crisis cell, um, which is supposed to, without delay, um, conduct the medical legal examination, preferably not later than six hours from the time of, you know, the information being received. Although the 2016 amendment also talks about the medical legal exam being done without delay. Um, they talk about, you know, conducting the forensic analysis, registering the FIR, all of this. And this all requires a level of coordination as yet unseen in the criminal justice system. Um, and it's all supposed to be led by the district commis commissioner or the deputy commissioner who doesn't have the sort of um, specialized knowledge of these types of investigations to be able to manage all of this, uh, nor do they have really the power to compel all of this. You know, the Punjab police is an independent institution and takes that independence very seriously. So compelling them to register an FIR when the police have determined there's not enough evidence, for example, to do so, um, that's going to create a lot of, um, you know, infighting within the government. Um, and then in terms of medical legal uh, examinations being done as soon as possible, you're not really looking at the underlying issues when you say, you know, it has to be done within six hours. Um, what I've seen in my discussions with police officers and medical legal officers is that there is serious underlying issues. So um, what frequently happens is, you know, um, first of all, uh, you know, each police station is assigned to a different medical legal facility or a different hospital or, you know, health facility. And, um, you know, if they transport the survivor to that health facility and find that there's no trained medical legal officers, they are then referred to, um, and usually in Punjab, it's the DHQ, they refer to Mia Munshi, mm -hmm. which is not necessarily the nearest uh, health facility for all police stations across Lahore. Um, so that's very problematic and it leads to unnecessary delay in terms of collecting the medical legal evidence. Um, you know, there's a serious need to ensure that all um, sort of uh, medical legal officers are adequately trained and there's always one on staff in all the health facilities that are attached to uh, police stations. With police stations being attached to different medical legal facilities, 
or hospitals or health facilities, um, they if they happen to go to a health facility closest to them, um, they'll often find you know medical legal officers who either are not available, they're not on duty, um, they've taken leave and no one has been appointed as a replacement. Um, they'll often find medical legal officers who are um, you know have been appointed on a contract, they're not permanent. Um, so they uh, have not been trained in medical legal evidence collection. Um, they're not as um, you know capable as permanent um, doctors. Um, then you have issues around um, medical legal officers um, just generally lacking the necessary training because the only time that they really study it is in their third year of their MBBS and there's no subsequent training being offered. Um, and you know this sort of jurisdictional issue with police officers being referred to different hospitals and then you know turning up and finding that a medical legal officer isn't available um, that's an issue and then there's also the fact that frequently medical legal officers are not dedicated uh, MLOs um, they're either assigned to the emergency department or the gynecology department and you can't really expect a medical legal officer in the middle of um, you know assisting a woman through labor to sort of drop that and then come and assist um, a survivor. Uh, it's very, very difficult to prioritize in that situation. Um, you know, if a woman is in labor for, say, 14 hours, there's not much a medical legal officer can do uh, except tell the police officer to come again the next day. Um, so, you know, these are sort of the underlying issues that result in the medical legal examination being delayed and simply, you know, legislating and saying that, you know, a medical legal exam has to be done within six hours is not really going to address the under the the real issues. Thank you for that, Barbara, for touching upon uh, pressing issues that are still there that need reform in order to be addressed, and the recent amendments that have taken place in this area. Uh, I also wanted to thank you for joining us today for this very insightful discussion, and um, I also wanted to thank our audience uh, for tuning in to uh, the Warrant, which is a podcast series by C Three. And we're hopeful that you tune in again for future podcasts in the future. Thank you so much.